0: Well, if you'll please turn with me to an Old Testament text and a New Testament text. First, please turn with me to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6. And as you're turning there, what we're going to be looking at today is I, I read this wonderful book, and again, if anybody would like to borrow it, you're more than welcome to it, Heavily underlined, if that bothers you, but it's The Creedal Imperative by Carl Truman. Um, It's an excellent little book, very highly recommended. And as I read that book and I considered how we're going to introduce um, going through the 1689, I thought one of the first things that would be helpful for us to go through is just asking the question, what attitude should we have to the confession of faith? A confession of faith, confessions of faith in general, without even regard to our specific confession of faith. What does the Bible call us in our attitude towards that? And I hope today we'll see that we have many cultural influences that maybe frame our understanding and our attitude that we have towards things like this. And we have many things even in our, in our own church context in this country that frame our attitude and that we would see things clearly. Jeremiah 6, in verse 16, a familiar text, as God calls the people of Judah to reform their lives. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But the bad news, but they said, we will not walk in it in it and then turn with me to 2nd Timothy 2nd Timothy in verse 1 2nd Timothy chapter 1 I should say and I'm going to read from verse 12 through 14 Paul writes, Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed and am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what, I, what has been entrusted to me. And then he commands Timothy, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, Obviously, neither of these texts speak of confessions in general. It doesn't use the word creeds or anything like that. And I hope that by the end of our study we'll see why we're using those texts and we'll come back to them to look at them in a little more detail. But I just want to be honest with you as a church today that I I really come before you today with a lot of trepidation in teaching this. Um, It would be much easier for me. I'd be much more comfortable if we would come to the study of our confession and just start in the first chapter of the confession, start talking about the Holy Scriptures. But I believe, as I've taught through the confession uh, twice in my life, I think that this is a necessary thing for us to think through and to try to see what the presuppositions of and are in our own mind towards confessional documents. My trepidation doesn't necessarily, in my own heart, even though I could be wrong, come from a sense that I'm unsure about what our attitude should be. The trepidation comes because I know a lot of beloved brothers and sisters who are antagonistic toward what I'm going to say today. And I just ask you today to please give me grace as we talk about this. If I'm wrong... <laughs> Caleb says no already. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm anxious about it. I'm hesitant. Thank you. Um, and so... If I don't cover everything that would be answered today and you want to know more, please come to me and we'll try to go through it. If I make mistakes, please come to me and we'll go through it. But I want us to just briefly outline, and if this is short, I want to keep it concise and memorable as well, because with confessionalism, and what I mean by confessionalism or creedalism is the adherence of a church, and in particular the elders of a church, to a certain doctrinal standard that is written down. And in particular, for our context, this is a historic confession. A confession that comes out of the Reformed and Puritan eras of the 17th century. And so, as we consider the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, it doesn't take a lot of math that we do in our heads to realize that this is an almost 400-year-old document that we are looking to as a doctrinal standard for the eldership of this church, and by implication, a doctrinal standard that we want every member to grow into in this church. And so, I want us to see first of all, I believe this is true, that confessionalism is very, very contrary to modern culture. Very contrary. ...contrary to modern culture. And that comes from a lot of different roots. Generally, we as a culture... ...have a a very doubtful view of the past. When we think about the past... ...the ideas of the past... ...we typically have a knee-jerk reaction... ...that everything that came from the past is wrong... ...and that we're in an unending stream of progress... ...going forward. And we see that in different ways, don't we? Like if we think of science... For instance, it would be very strange for somebody to to join MIT, the school of Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a wonderful school for for science, and say, you know, I wonder what 13th century physicists thought about this particular problem. And to go to that for their standard, it would be very strange for them to do it. And we would say that would probably be something that wasn't proper to do. We look at technology. And how technology in this modern culture has really reversed the way that things have gone for thousands of years. If you think about it, normal life in this world was typically by the pattern that you did what your father or your mother did. They taught you and trained you in a trade. And you grew up to learn that trade and that's what you did. But in this culture today, Brother Truman actually gives an illustration. That he was in his mother's cottage trying to set up her DVR player to watch a rugby match right, England obviously, and he couldn't figure it out, he worked on it for hours for it, and then his like 14 year old niece comes out of the room, she like rolls her eyes and hits two buttons on the remote, and it's fixed, right, our our views of science, our views of technology have perhaps worked in our hearts to make us have a, a very skeptical eye towards things of the past, very skeptical eye, and even consumerism in our modern culture, That We are trained by the TV, by radio, by advertisement, that we're always um, disinterested and we are not content with the things that we own now. We have to get the better thing, the new thing. How many people have computers that are over five years old? And I do, but it's not common. We want to get the new computer, we want to get the new phone, we want to get the new clothes. These things tend to work in our hearts, and the question that I'm asking you, is to do an honest evaluation. Is it possible that the cultural trends that we swim in every day of our lives affect the attitude that we have towards doctrinal standards? But it's not only a devaluation of the past that is at work in our culture. It's a really rampant anti-authoritarianism. We see this on the left and on the right. Anybody telling me what to do, what to think about a certain thing, I will not take it and I will not have it. Traditional forms of authority are rejected. Because not all authority is rejected, we have to realize. I mean, you go on Instagram and Twitter and you have people, you know, boy bands and things like that. They seem to have a lot of clout in what political policy should be or, or the environment. But traditional forms of authority are looked at with a lot of disdain. And I think, and my point, is that we must be aware that we are more inclined to think the way that our culture thinks then maybe we, we have an awareness of. Does that make sense? And that can contribute to our attitude towards confessionalism, but it's also our evangelical culture that tends this way. All of the above that we have already talked about have come into evangelical culture. We have a distrust of the past in our churches. Um, it's very often stated. They'll say, Semper Reformanda... And instead of saying what Jeremiah said, look for the ancient paths, for the old ways, it's we're going with the culture and finding out these new things about Christianity, and we're always seeking these new things. Not only that, we see that the church is ravaged by consumerism, individuality, and all of these things can cause us to have multiple reactions. The culture working in us, this hatred and devaluation of the past and authority can cause us to have two reactions. First, we could say we have no creed but the Bible, right? Which, I I understand that impulse, and it can seem like a very conservative impulse. But, what it really is, is a lot of Hyper-individuality. And we'll get into that. We can say it's no creed but the Bible. Often people fall away from the faith because they find that they can have no trust in what has been said formally in doctrine. And so there's a falling away from the faith because there's nothing new that appeals to my individual mind. Or people go to Rome. They go to Catholicism. Or they go to Eastern Orthodoxy. Because it's the only churches that they can find that seem to have some ancient roots built into them. Where the past actually speaks. And there's a rootedness in the past. And so, as we consider confessionalism being contrary to our culture, both in the church and the world. I want us to take that to heart. But next, I want us to see and evaluate what we think the proper role of tradition is in the church. All right. Now, there's a, a man named Heiko Obermann. I think it's Obermann or Oberlin, one of the two, who very famously, um, about half a century ago, wrote a book where he outlined the different roles of traditions as we see them as Christians. And he labeled them Tradition 0, Tradition 1, and Tradition 2. Okay, And I think this is very helpful for us. Now, we're going to start with Tradition 2. Now, Tradition 2 says that there are two distinct sources of tradition in the church that we should pay attention to. One is the tradition of how we interpret the Bible throughout the church. And two is the tradition of extra-biblical church authority. The popes speaking, right? Councils coming up with new traditions that are not found in the Bible. We might think of purgatory... Right? We might think of Mariolatry, the worship of Mary, where these traditions are come up with as extra revelations given to the church and only later do they try to go back to the Bible and find support for those things. Tradition two is what we find in Roman Catholicism. And we should react viscerally to that. This is not in any way, shape, or form rooted in the Bible. The church actually becomes the authority in the two streams view. So that is tradition... but there's also, and we could talk about tradition 2 a little more, where where do we see tradition 2 maybe in the Bible? That there's two streams of tradition, it's what men have said outside of Scripture, and there's what the Bible says, the Pharisees, absolutely, Jesus rebuked them strongly for that. Right? They come up with all these traditions that not only aren't found in the Bible, they go against biblical teaching. Right? You have taught men, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, to disrespect their fathers and their mothers and break the fifth commandment by this issue of Corban. Right? Right? he says in verse 4, For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father and mother what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father and mother. For the sake of your own tradition, you have made void the word of God. Right? And this kind of thinking, tradition too in the church, from my understanding, really came to the fore in the 12th century and came to its fullest expression, you've heard of Occam's Razor, right? And William of Occam in the 14th century, putting these things into law in the Catholic Church. This is two-tradition theology. And so next we're going to see Tradition Zero. And this is, but the Bible. And this touches a little closer to our hearts. And again, I want to be very clear. I don't want to come out and you think that I'm against you if you hold to this. But I want us to see that this tends to only individual interpretation of the Scripture. That is, when we consider what we're called to do as Christians, we're called to disciple one another, aren't we? That is to take somebody under our wing and teach them Christian truth. But the problem... With no creed but the Bible, is it only accepts explicit text for the Bible as proof of any doctrine, and is therefore avert, has an aversion towards any kind of systematic theology? Does that make sense to you? Okay, and because of that, when we do discipleship, we really make it impossible for ourselves because I'm trying to explain to somebody the sum of the biblical text. And the thing that this disciple must do, as soon as I teach it to him, is throw everything I've taught him out the window and come up with his own interpretation. Because he can't trust the tradition that I've just handed down to him. This aversion to systematics, um, and what I want us to see is that it cannot be consistent. If we say that we believe in the Bible alone, without any kind of doctrinal formulation behind it, Nobody can live that way, is what I want us to see, right? And the reason nobody can live that way is because as soon as I try to interpret a text to you, I've left the Bible alone, and I'm giving you something else. Anytime we go and pick up a commentary off the bookshelf, we've left the Bible alone in this tradition zero kind of way. Not to mention that everybody in the church, every church has a creed. Now, proof of that, if I go to any Unitarian church, which is very explicit that they have no creed but the Bible, okay, and I go into their pulpit and I start preaching that there's a trinity, what's the first reaction going to be? You need to get out of our church because we're Unitarians, right? Oftentimes we hear there's no creed but the Bible from dispensational, Baptist, Congregationalists, Right? My point is that they have a system of doctrine that they're adhering to, and if you go outside that system, you're not going to be welcome to teach that from the, from the pulpit, right? What's the difference? Everybody has a creed in their mind. We have a way of systematizing Scripture, and we can explain what Scripture means outside the words of the Bible. The difference with confessionalism and creedalism is that these things are written down. They're written down so that people can look at them and judge them. People can scrutinize them. And see where they're wrong. But everybody has a creed. And tradition zero, this individualistic interpretation, is a a very, very new thing in Christianity. I want us to realize that and see it. It really came about in the Radical Reformation with the Anabaptists. Some of them even saying we don't even need the Bible, we just need the Spirit's direct revelation coming to us. And they rejected all kinds of creeds. Although not all of them. A lot of Anabaptists... Came up with confessions and creeds at the time of the Reformation. And this really took off in the 1830s with revivalism. And so, I want us to see that if we're called to disciple other people, if we're called as a church to hold the form of sound words, that tradition zero, I don't think, is a viable option. Do we have any questions about tradition zero? Yeah. Could you touch on how uh, no creed but the Bible? Yeah. How that meshes with, uh, um, you know, the, the spirit of Reformation in terms of, uh, looking to only the Bible to check the the creed of that? No. And, and, and that, yeah. Well, and that that's a really excellent question. And the reformers, when they would say sola scriptura, okay, they're not saying what we typically hear. We hear only creed, but the Bible. And we can't go to any other sources for authority. Now, they would all say the ultimate authority is scripture, and they would even say that confessions or creeds are normed norms. That is, they are formed by the scripture, and the scripture has right to change them. Yes? Yeah, amen. Yes, that's absolutely right. We even see it with Martin Luther. Okay? When Martin Luther was at the Diet of Worms and he was being questioned about these ideas that he was bringing forth to the Reformation, the question that bothered Martin Luther was the question, are you alone wise? We have this history of church tradition that goes along with this. Are you alone wise? Are you so wise in yourself, Martin Luther, that you would do this? Martin Luther came forward and he said, I stand on the word of God alone, right? But we usually take that story apart from its context. The reformers were adamant about constantly going back to early church fathers and showing that their views actually were not new. If you read through Calvin, you read through Luther, you read through these men, they knew early church fathers, they knew what they said about particular passages, and they gave their interpretation of the scripture and then showed that this is a common interpretation seen throughout church history. Does that answer your question? Close. Yeah. Did they appeal to creeds at the time? Oh, yes. Yes. Yes, and not necessarily with the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church adhered to a lot of the creeds and confessions, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, the definition of Chalcedon, things like that. But they would appeal to what the early church fathers said, that these aren't new theologies that the Reformation is coming up with. These are rooted in history. I'm not answering your question yet. Okay. Okay. Um, But they did. When he was dealing with Servetus and the Anabaptists in particular that wanted to deny any kind of authority, they would constantly appeal to the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and things like that. Okay? So, if you're going to take anything away, Tradition Zero is inconsistent and it cannot be held, especially if we're going to try to hold it very rigidly that only explicit Bible texts can be used to defend anything. We lose the Trinity at that point. No text says Trinity. There's a lot, of, a lot of things that we have. Justification by faith alone is not found in a particular text stated as clearly as we want it stated. Okay? These things are important to us, and they involve taking what the Bible says and putting them together. And what we should see is that the church has done those things in the past. And that brings us to Tradition 1. Okay? Tradition 1 is a tool. Tradition, one, is defined as tradition is a tool and is of a faithful interpretation of Scripture with Scripture remaining as the only source of divine revelation. Okay. So, how does tradition one, the reformer's view of traditions, okay, and the whole church's view of tradition up until Roman Catholicism in the medieval period, tradition is the exegetical tradition of the church. Okay? Where we don't look to what church fathers said that they're, whatever they say is absolutely true, okay, but that it's a faithful tool for trying to help us interpret scripture. And part of the reason for that is because we always have to interpret scripture and know that we interpret scripture where Carl Truman says sin chronically and die chronically, okay? Sin chronically means with time. That I am in a culture that has certain presuppositions and ideas attached to it. And I have to realize when I come to the Scripture and try to interpret it, I might be bringing modern notions that are unbiblical into my interpretation of the text. And so to help that, we interpret Scripture with time as well. Through time, rather. Diachronic. Where we look to how other generations have interpreted Scripture and, and help as a help and a tool to do this. Um, and that has caused the early church to take the scripture and formulate creeds and confessions and just even statements that are repeated. Okay? I'll give you some examples. The early church, before maybe before 100 AD, had already produced a catechism called the Didache. Okay? Didache means the teaching of the apostles, okay? And this catechism, it really detailed church order and church government. Beyond that, in 150 through 300, there's what's called the Regula Fide. And this was a very similar series of words put together that was really formalized and made concrete in the Apostles' Creed in 350 or so. And we could keep going through that. The, The councils of the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian definition, and others. The church has always used creedal formulation to do what it does. And what I'm trying to imply today, and I know I've already implied strongly, is that the Scripture implies tradition one. Okay? Not only is this what the church has always done, not only is it helpful, but I would say from the Bible, we can see that there's elements of tradition being used in the church, and we're expected as a church to hold to some form of tradition, meaning seeing how people have interpreted Scripture before us and having a reverent attitude towards that. Okay. First, I want us to see that Scripture is very clear that we are discipled almost primarily in the local church context by our elders, right? I don't think we would all agree with that. And elders, every elder in every church holds to a specific creed, a specific doctrinal formulation, whether it's written down or not. And as a church, we're called to respect those doctrines and have a reverent view towards them, even if we end up disagreeing. So turn with me to Ephesians 4. As we've gone there many times in the past study, Ephesians chapter 4, this text cannot be read with a tradition 0. Verse 11, and He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of the saints until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine." Brother Joey, a few weeks ago, brought us through the key component of discipleship is to say in our minds that we are stupid people naturally and we need to be trained, we need to be taught, we need to be discipled, right? My point is, every elder has a doctrinal formulation in his mind, and we are called as a congregation to have respect towards that, to be convinced of it because we don't have all the knowledge in ourselves. Um, and very similarly, Hebrews 13-17, again a text we've been over, over and over again, it tells us that we're to obey the leaders that God has given to us. In Hebrews 13 and verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And so what I simply want to put to you today is we think about Hebrews 13, 17. To obey, as we've gone over, means to be persuaded of. Okay, To be teachable. If your elders hold to whatever confession it is, written down or not, are we not called as a church to have a reverent respect towards that doctrine, even if we end up saying, I don't agree with it. Do you have questions about that? So I think even within our own church context, as me and Brother Joey have chosen to adhere to a written document, there should be an attitude of respect towards it. But I want us to also see that this same attitude should carry into the church historical. I think it can be very arrogant of us. To say this is the only generation, the only church, I'm the only person perhaps, that the Holy Spirit can reveal knowledge to. Rather, we should see and go back to history saying the church has been teaching, the Holy Spirit rather, has been teaching the church for 2,000 years. And do I really have the attitude in my heart that I can't learn anything from this? It is not biblical to have an attitude of suspicion towards either the elders' doctrine, I will say even the historical doctrines of the church. Now, the church has made many mistakes, and I want to be very clear, I'm not saying that we just read what somebody has said in history and just accept it, okay? But when we read specific confessions and creeds that churches throughout the ages have gotten together and agreed that this is a, a consistent an accurate attestation of what the Bible teaches, to just throw it away and have a knee-jerk reaction of suspicion towards it, I'm just going to say I think that's an unbiblical attitude to have towards it. I don't think that you can find that anywhere in Scripture, that we have a knee-jerk reaction, that we just don't trust anything that anybody said to us in the past. And furthermore, I'd have you turn back towards 2 Timothy one thirteen. And to consider, in light of what we've discussed, even though I know I've, I've rambled a little bit, my words have not been as clear as I want them to be, and I just must trust that the Lord will use it. Um, but please, come to me if you have questions or thoughts or if I missaid something, because this is very important to me. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul tells, I want us to notice, Timothy, to follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard in me by the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Follow the form of sound words. There's a, a pattern of words that Paul wants Timothy to remember and to use. Timothy is not just to memorize the Scripture word for word and tell the next generation what the Scripture says word for word without needing interpretation. Right? We know that every heretic in the world has a text of Scripture that they can go to and to teach us. Rather, he tells Timothy, What I've told you is the fundamental outline and the main point of Scripture, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and many more things like that. You must keep that form of sound words. You must keep apostolic doctrine and what is taught there in a summaristic form in your heart and teach other men also. This is repeated. When I think more than just repeated, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, don't we see elders and the qualification of elders being used? That we're supposed to be apt to teach. Does that mean that anybody that's able to teach any subject in the world should be able to teach the Bible? We'd say no. We'd say anybody that can exposit any passage of Scripture should be able to teach. We'd say no, it's those who hold the form of sound words. Those who are orthodox in their teaching, that understand, again, in a summaristic fashion, what the Bible teaches. Those are the kind of men that are apt to teach, brother. I'm just thinking as you're talking about watching academic debates between a Mormon and an orthodox person. Like, there are Mormons that are very intelligent and can be like in the scriptures in a way that might pious and not so much, but they're not qualified because they're not holding to that pattern of sound words. Uh, along with that point, if you've ever had an intelligent Jehovah's Witness knock on your door, they can be very persuasive. And they, they know their Bibles better than some of us do, especially these particular texts. They're trained in these things very quickly. And I just point out, it was founded on the principle that there's no creed but the Bible. And they abandoned all those forms of sound words and they created their own doctrine from the dust. And we're, and we're left with this This terrible heresy that's destructive to the people involved. We're to hold to the form of sound words. And there's many texts that are somewhat similar to that. Um, Titus. Again, a pastoral letter. As Paul is trying to prepare these churches to be ready for when the apostles are gone and they have to take care of themselves, he tells Timothy in probably the last letter that Paul ever wrote to hold the form of sound words... And in Titus 1.9, again, notice. The elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as what? As taught. As taught. Not as read. Okay? If we believe in tradition zero, that it's only the Scripture, and we have to form our own doctrine from the ground up, individually, every single person, that's not what Paul's teaching here. Every elder holds to the trustworthy word as taught to them. They've received a tradition, an exegetical tradition of the Old and New Testament from the Apostle Paul, and they're to hold to that. They're to hold to that. We could even see this in chapter 2 and verse 1, talking to Titus. But as for you, again, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And again, notice the very particular wording here. He doesn't just say, quote the Bible. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And the implication is that the people who he teaches this sound doctrine are going to take it, they're going to receive that tradition and grow. Now, the thing that we have to to ask is... Does that mean that I have to take every word that my pastor says, every word that the confession says, and and just believe it without any kind of thought process going on in my mind? Thank you. No, absolutely not. That's not what we're saying. But as we taught in our church doctrine lesson, the proper attitude of congregants toward elders and elders toward one another, right, is that we would be willing to be persuaded by those men, right? Right? We would see that they're placed in a particular sphere of authority within the church and we should not go to them with a knee-jerk reaction everything they say is wrong until they prove it to me. Right? I think we would all agree that that's not a healthy way to think. Rather we should say Pastor, you said this I'm having a hard time with it will you explain it to me? And perhaps I'd say, well, yes, and maybe you should read this book to try to better help you understand. And after you've done some research to say, I just don't agree with my pastor on this. That's okay. Same thing's true with the confessions and the creeds of our faith. But I would say more so. Okay? I think that we often get that reversed and we say less so. But these are documents that again, like-minded brothers and sisters have got together on, agreed on all of these doctrines in very specific wording, okay? And it's been tested for nearly 400 years. And as we'll look at next week, our confession is not just 400 years old, it draws from language that's been used since the beginning of Christianity. It's drawn from the Apostles' Creed, drawn from the Nicene Creed. When the writers of the confession wrote it, our confession... They were not trying to write new doctrine. They were trying to show by their very specific wording that everything that we believe is what everybody's believed in the past. Now there might be some more um, building upon doctrine and further explanation of doctrine there than normal. But that's what they're trying to do. Our attitude, I would propose to you today, towards historic accepted standards of the church. I would say especially the Apostles' Creed... Nicene Creed, definition of Chalcedon, these things should be held very reverently by us. And if we have the knee-jerk reaction that, I just don't believe it, I think that we have some, some searching to do in our hearts. And if we look at those particular things, after much study, reading 4th century Trinitarian theologians and things like that and say they just were wrong about this, that might be true. Although, I, I don't think that they were. Um, so, Do we have any questions? Thoughts? Brother? I'm wondering if this is a a right way of thinking about your um, Tradition 0, 1, and 2. Yeah. As it relates to the humility of the text, it seemed like all three cases would claim the Bible is infallible and the ultimate rule. Mm -hmm. Yes. But Tradition tradition 2 says history cannot go wrong. It, It also is infallible. Yeah. No. Nope. So me and everyone who's currently alive interpreting now is right. I, I think you're absolutely right, brother. Everyone yeah. Take some kind of humility about both and say I'm more likely to go wrong in myself, so I, I look to history, but I understand that men are infallible whenever they they great. Right? Yeah, and I think that's a very helpful way to look at it. Okay, except for with with Roman tradition they really don't see Scripture as the ultimate authority. They see it as equal side-by-side with church authority. Which is a shocking thing to say, but it's true. Um, Where we would say the only authority is Scripture, but as a helpful aid of interpretation, I do not neglect the exegetical tradition of the church. I don't pretend it didn't happen, and that I can come up with it better somehow. Does that make sense? Because I want it to make sense really bad to everybody, yes. Yes, please, simplify. Yeah. If I don't understand something, I want to talk to somebody who knows about that thing. Yes. And preferably, the more experience they have, the better. The more they know, the better. And we just have this idea that, well, the dead guys are out of balance. It's like, why? Yeah. Yeah. We have such a wealth of information. Yes. Yes? Yes? Why do we have this knee-jerk reaction to think, well, those guys are dead, and so are their ideas. They're not useful to me. And I just got to look at people even like that. Well, and I agree, brother. And if I can just bring up two things that are going through my mind. And again, I've had these thoughts for maybe six or seven years, but this is the first time I've tried to formulate them. Again, this book's very helpful. But when we think about Jesus even dealing with the disciples last week, Coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples said, well, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first, right? And Jesus doesn't say, why are you even talking about the scribes, right? He never corrects them on that particular level. He says, well, they're right. Elijah must come first, right? Now, Jesus corrects the scribes and the Pharisees on a number of areas where they were absolutely, totally wrong, but he never says it's bad to even look at what was said in the past about these things, okay? Okay. It was always seen as good to have teachers in the church. Please do. Yeah, yeah. Right now, but I think the one statement from me in my mind. Yeah. Still, how do you how do you test the contents of a confession to Scripture in a way that rightly puts Scripture first? Yeah. How's that done in, in context? Yeah. Yeah. Right, so, so I understand what you're saying, but I, I don't think that that thought process transfers to other things that we do accept, such as singing songs, listening to preaching, right? Listening to preaching, let's take as a pre... you know, a, the authoritative preaching of God's Word, right? We believe that the Word of God is spoken. We would say that we believe that what my pastor said is true, right? And so the question being, how do I... How do I test those words with Scripture, right, and hold it as an authority while still seeing the Scripture as the ultimate authority, right? And I would say you do it in the same way. You go to your pastor, you talk to him, you say, I didn't understand this particular thing, and the pastor tries to show you in the Scripture where it's true, right? Is this not making sense? Okay, then maybe I'm not understanding your question. Because to me, those things are very analogous. Oh, yes. Oh. How do you arrive at it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, There's absolutely the uh, the possibility of saying confession is wrong, and it's it's been done. And I would say that there are things in the confession that are stated, I think, could be stated in different ways. Um, I'm not adhering to every word, jot, and tittle. And. Um, but how, do you, how do you arrive at that is the the question. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because what we're saying is just being convinced by me and my Bible is not an way to critique church history. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. So what I am trying to rail against is an individual interpretation, a knee-jerk reaction is, this is wrong, and I'm suspicious of it. Okay. Rather, what should be done, and I'm trying to say with every authority we hold in reverence, Okay, is to be very careful, very thoughtful, and very thorough in, in our investigation of it. Okay. So instead of just saying, that's wrong because that's not my surface-level reading of the Bible as I understand it now, saying, what are some good sources that I could read on that? How did they think about this particular text with the underlying assumption in my mind, I could be wrong about this. That's all I'm saying. I don't want the knee-jerk reaction that this is absolutely right, but it should not be this is wrong either. Does that make sense? Okay. Any other thoughts, questions? Brother. Brother. And it may be that my current understanding of Yes. Yes. right. And again, I'm trying to draw that this is just basic discipleship, right? But we, holding tradition one, I think, gives the accurate assessment that we not only are being discipled by people who are alive right now, But we have been discipled throughout Christian history by by clear teaching that's been passed down from us. And we've received tradition. Now, we can say we haven't, but that's not honest. That's not honest. And our attitude, I think, should be, and I'll close with this, the attitude of Hebrews 13.7. Where the writer tells this congregation, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. And the assumption is that these men are dead. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That is not just imitate how they acted in life, but imitate their faith. Imitate the things that they they believed, that they taught, and how they acted in their life in accordance with those things. Alright. Well, I, I I trust that if you guys have any questions or comments that you'll come to me. Because again, I believe that this is very important for our church. All right, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we come before you in the name of your Son. I, I thank you for helping me as I've been very nervous about the, this message. And I pray that it makes some sense, but where it didn't make sense, Lord, I pray that you'd give me the humility to correct and that, um, that you'd help us to grow in our, in our knowledge of this, God, in our assessment of how we receive tradition. In Jesus' name, amen.